So speaking of that sort of thing, I would love to hear your thoughts on why statistically there are more tongue ties, why the bottom jaw is set back a bit more, why our jaws are different. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, locally the Biripai people and all other First Nations people within Australia, this beautiful country where I'm blessed to live. I aim to participate in reconciliation and I support the sovereignty of the First Nations people. So thanks for tuning in to the Pollination Mamas podcast. If it's your first time, welcome. If you're back again, awesome and thank you. I aim to bring you collaborative conversations, cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe that ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. Hi everyone, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I've got a local-ish guest, very local actually, um, Alyssa Powell from Lac... Latch lactation. Look, I'm I'm getting tongue tied already. He's just saying from latch lactation, who's a mother of two and a board certified lactation consultant. So Alyssa comes with a very widely varied and multidisciplinary background, and has specialties in digestive wellness, food allergies and intolerances, healthy cooking, meal planning, diet and detox, and elimination diets. But being a lactation consultant is about so much. So before we jumped on to record, Alyssa and I had a bit of a chat. We're like, oh, how are we not going to talk about all the things? Because it really um, is a holistic picture that lactation consultants look at. So thank you for being here, Alyssa. Thank you, Shelley. It's lovely to get to chat with you today. I know, finally. I've been, I've been hearing so much about you from people locally that you've been working with and on social media. So your background is quite impressive and varied. And I would love for you to share with people how you came to this work. So a little bit of your background and then obviously becoming a mother um, gives that a whole nother element and layer. So yeah, I'd love for you to share that journey with people. Thanks Shelley. My primary interest has been in uh, making the world a better place, you could say. And, you know, as we grow and change throughout our life, that can take different forms is how we think that's an important important way to do our bit for the world. Or um, I'm really passionate about education. I have um, a degree in primary teaching as well as I've studied behavioural neuroscience um, and some biomedical sciences. So... Uh, I, I think knowledge is power and I think education is paramount. So for me, becoming a lactation consultant was a need that I saw in the community. Uh, I was living in Melbourne when I had my first daughter and even in the city I perceived that need and that lack of education sort of to be quite a significant barrier to women and mothers breastfeeding but also to the whole society around us and our whole world as a big picture. The big piece that was missing at the time or is missing at the time for us um, in our current society in modern day so we have a lot of there's a lot of evidence-based research that's out there and it's not necessarily um, being read or shared or communicated very well so I'm quite passionate about bringing together 
um, the, the resources and education we have across a whole lot of different fields as to how we can help mums and babies and ultimately to create um, better society for humans. Yeah. In a nutshell. <laughs> yes, yeah. Awesome. And so then how, when did you decide that you wanted to become a lactation consultant? How did that come about? Uh, after having children, after uh, my eldest having issues with tongue-tie and food intolerances and having to learn a lot about gut health, um, digestion, sucks, follow, breathe, coordination and the biomechanics because I'm quite science-minded, I'm interested in the knowing the how and the why of how things work. Uh, and so I was quite shocked to find that it was really hard to find health professionals that had that piece of information because everybody sort of started just from their own specific field. It doesn't necessarily encompass mums and babies and there is no medical specialty covering breastfeeding. So we have obstetricians and gynaecologists that work on their different fields but no one does infant feeding or breast and breast surgeons don't do breastfeeding. So I uh, was quite interested to, to learn that, that there was no one for me to go and see. So um, I felt the call to go and become one of those people to specialise in bringing all those pieces together so that there's more of us. There's not that many around in Australia. Um, we're lucky in Port Macquarie. We have a lactation consultancy service um, at the Port-based hospital. Um, but there's not many people around in private practice that see the ins and outs of different sort of um, scenarios in the community. Uh, so... Those of us in private practice work, we do telehealth um, around the world. We have clients from all around the world. So, uh, yeah, because there's a lot of people in rural areas, especially like in Australia. <laughs> um, and it covers a, a very huge varied um, amount of reasons why people would contact us and what they might need help with related to infant feeding, swallowing, breathing, breastfeeding, breasts, mums, postpartum. <laughs> yeah. covers a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find people are coming to you through various channels? Do they often go through, like in Australia, would it be Australian Breastfeeding Association and then referred on? Are you working in the hospital or are you mostly private practice? No, no hospital work for me. I'm not a nurse or a midwife, so I'm not um, eligible to work in a hospital setting or I don't wish to in uh, in that way. Uh, Nurses and midwives bring a different skill set with them, though, and they have a, a wide and varied experience of their own and their amazing skills that they can contribute, which, which are quite different to mine. Uh, and as we were saying off air, every lactation consultant actually brings quite a diverse skill set. Even if they are a nurse or a midwife, they will have their own special interest because it is such a broad area. Uh, we can't be an expert at all things in the area. Uh, but because it covers latch feeding, swallowing, positioning, attachment, mums, babies, breasts, anatomy, physiology, there are so many different aspects to that. Um, but nutrition, microbiology, the chemistry of it, there are so many facets. So each lactation consultant will have a different focus or bent or different skills that they contribute across from the basic assessment that we all do that is common. Yeah, and then others do, some people do shorter consults and more structural, more positioning, more latch. Uh, some teach sort of compensations or tricks and some investigate more the root cause and, and the big picture. Uh, like, like every health professional, everyone has a, a different philosophy or approach that influences what they bring to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so looking at that holistic picture, obviously mums will be contacting you with such a wide range of um, questions and queries and challenges. But are there certain things that are more common? Are there, is there sort of a common theme that you start to see more of that maybe the listeners would relate, relate to? Yeah, in private practice, I see people who have usually been, they're still having troubles when their baby is a little bit older. So usually people get the home visiting me with free service and the amazing free services that we have available through community health as well. So they, they can access those. And it's when problems are persistent or they're not simple things that are sort of easily figured out um, that I usually see most of my clients. And I see much older babies and toddlers and children as well, uh, of course. So it spans quite a lot. And with training in orofacial myology, I'm seeing older children for other issues too. And a lot of the, the babies that I see with breastfeeding, especially starting out with breastfeeding, they're, they're the issues that are, that are a little more multi-layered. So uh, birth trauma and birth strain, things that are a bit more persistent, tongue-tie, food intolerance and allergy, things related to mum's gut health and mum's previous health history and health issues, perhaps her hormonal history, all part of that so yeah it's usually those sort of multi-layered issues and often people will have quite a few small things going on at the same time and don't necessarily realize either which is why they haven't been able to simply solve their challenge yeah and it's important to have fresh eyes and, and people with those different investigative skills to look at all the options and things that could be going on and also to rule out other things too um, I analyse babies from a structural perspective with having had training in, um, in the structure and function from a, a physiology perspective. So I'm looking at which muscles babies are using through their whole body because feeding for a baby is a whole body experience and it's related to mum's whole body and mum and baby as an ecosystem. So I'm analysing the whole dyad and how they interact and not just looking at the baby or not just looking at the feed. Uh, so there's there's so many things on my checklist. There's so many pages of things that I go through and fill in my notes um, that we could talk about. But it's for me, it's it's looking at the whole picture for what's going on for that diet. For me. Yeah, I love that concept because that's very much what like being a postpartum doula is being aware and bringing that into other people's awareness. It's the fourth trimester, so very much aware that even though baby's outside of the womb there still is that very close relationship. There's almost a sense of oneness in that dyad there. So that's beautiful. I love that. Um, Even same thing goes for bottle-fed babies as well. So I see bottle-fed babies and formula-fed babies and all sorts of variations and combinations. And and that's something that I think can sometimes get missed with other professions is is that young babies and young children are still exist. They only exist in the context of with the caregiver. That's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up, that, yeah, it's the same Mm -hmm. for bottle-fed babies. Um, Mm -hmm. So if a mum was starting to wonder, am I having issues? I mean, usually a mum will have an idea if something's not quite right, but it can be really confusing when you're learning so much. It's like such a new thing to learn, to become a mother, to learn to breastfeed, to learn your rhythm of sleeping and being and so um if someone's starting to question that they might have issues what is that going to look like with a latch like how long 
should the nipples feel sore for uh, what um, what does a good latch look like? I know you can't explain exactly, but what are some of the symptoms that people might be experiencing or bub might be experiencing, a mum or bub, that would then alert them to maybe looking into needing a lactation consultant? Yes, any pain at all. I think that's the biggest misconception that I want to battle <laughs> is that, that no, all pain is a message, right? So looking at what is that communicating to you and there's a big myth out there that pain is normal with breastfeeding, especially at the start and especially for our first few weeks or months or whatever different things people say, but it's actually not normal ever. No pain is ever normal. So you can have sensitive nipples if you haven't breastfed before and it might feel weird and you don't know what it's meant to feel like, but that's a different thing. So pain is always a red flag and it doesn't mean it's a bad thing or a big problem. It could be very, very simple and it could be in your case that it is... Um, there are some different things going on with your nerves or your pain levels or you might have had a seizure or all sorts of different things in your health and hormonal history that might be really simple to fix, might be really straightforward or maybe just purely moving the baby a millimetre and that might fix it. But it's always got to be fixed. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's my point. take home message. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we can't fix all pain causes either. There are a few different sorts of conditions, but we, we need to understand it. Even if we can't fix it, we need, in my opinion, <laughs> we always need to, my philosophy, I should say, is to fully understand the root cause as best we can with all the factors involved, but to really be detectives to analyse that all together so we, so we know what the whole picture is. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, it's important. So it's knowing what those symptoms might look like, but then getting way down to the root cause yeah all of those questions that you might ask in an assessment that sometimes people might be able to recognize like I know for me when I had trouble with my first I knew something wasn't quite right I knew the pain was going on but I didn't know that I shouldn't experience any pain but I just knew it was going on for too long even though people would say oh yeah a couple of weeks is normal um and but I didn't know anything else than that so then for someone to come along like yourself and ask a broader set of questions gives it another context it, and it takes it away from it's such a sensitive time as a mother you don't want to feel like you want to feel like you're doing a good job you want to feel like and there's this whole um, idea of just naturally picking up your baby and knowing how to breastfeed which I like to break down as well I learned from um, my postpartum doula teacher Julia Jones it was an example somewhere I think in the States of a gorilla orangutan learning to breastfeed and having trouble and so a bunch of human mums from La Leche League I think went and sat in front of the enclosure and breastfed uh, and then so this animal whether it's orangutan or gorilla came and was able to just breastfeed and mimic so a lot of us are removed from growing up around just seeing everyone breastfeed around us so it can be so much more challenging learning that absolutely it's quite a few things sorry no no go there quite a few factors there yeah that you that you've touched on the common issues yeah yeah so I think it's good for people to remember to let go of this idea that you just maybe you will maybe you just have the baby and pop the baby on and everything will go beautifully but not to feel bad if it doesn't it, it may not and statistically that's not very common so we as it's a learned skill and that's a key take-home message that I would like to say today that breast and ABA says it all the time the Australian Breastfeeding Association because I'm a counsellor with her as well as a volunteer, breastfeeding is a learned skill 
you're not expected to know how to do it and your baby doesn't know how to do it either just automatically you have the instincts and the intuition there and your baby is born with a set of reflexes specifically for that purpose but you also have to have access to those reflexes they have to be working you have to be in the optimal sort of condition for them to be switched on in your brain there's so many factors and there's a lot of things we do in our society these days that switches those off and that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> but to stick with your mum or to get in touch with maybe even rediscover or discover your intuition as a mum is probably a better way to focus on it as, as an expectant mother rather than as sort of assuming that it's a, something that you're going to know how to do because that's, that's, it's quite an advanced skill. <laughs> it's an art and a science and it's also a socially learnt skill, as you say. But there are also very many reasons why in our society these days that women are not in their optimal health state. Birth may not be in its optimal biologically natural state for so many reasons of things that, that may be a little bit different or by choice or your setting or anything, any of those factors. So uh, we need to take all those into account. Also, you know, mums, mums often don't realise how much their pre-existing health status impacts at breastfeeding. So when you are recovering in the postpartum period, you are physically, can, you know, can highlight your nutritional depletion and it can highlight your challenges that were underlying, that were manageable beforehand uh, when you're sustaining the life of another human. As mums sometimes in the postpartum period get quite disheartened that they're, they're physically not as well as they would like. And there's things we can do about that too <laughs> and other people can help with. Uh, but yeah, there's a range of so many reasons why people experience challenges. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd actually really like to unpack that idea of how a lot of our social structures and um, aspects in our society are impacting on that. I'd love a few examples because I think this is really key to sort of going back to using modern science with traditional wisdom. When you look at a lot of postpartum tradition, care traditions, uh, they seem to have a really innate understanding of what a mother would need and create that space and environment and inputs for that. And I think that's really key for people to understand and also to, t again, take that onus and that blame off themselves, self-blame, to realise that you're part of a human ecosystem and you can try and shape that in some way that will be more beneficial and also, it also comes back to your goals, I guess. What are your breastfeeding goals here and optimising that? So, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your ideas about those social structures that impact. I'm so passionate about this, Shelley. I could talk to you about this for an hour as well as a subtopic. But, uh, and I don't get the pleasure of getting to chat about this very often, so it's really okay, nice. Let's go. Let's dive into it. Because looking at the big picture, yeah, in terms of evolutionary biology, so this is a passion of mine, this area of so evolutionary biology but also human behavioural neuroscience and coming back to what we know about the human brain, the physical body and what our evolutionary programming says and tells us to do as humans is foundational to this whole discussion. So we need to understand ourselves as physical um, mammals, as 
humans and as a species to understand what that means, what works, what doesn't work, what our brains expect and what our bodies expect. So we can have the choice to deviate from that at any point and we do all the time in our society. We do all sorts of things that um, our ancestors didn't do. And that's by choice and for convenience, all sorts of reasons. But to, to get a physiological, like a biological function working, you need to understand why it's there and what its purpose is and how humans have evolved to get to that point. So I think the same goes for birth, breastfeeding, child rearing uh, and community. Our babies are born expecting the exact same circumstances as their ancestors through millennia. So they don't know that they're not living... 20,000 years ago. So we, we, we must send that message to all expectant mothers and fathers and all our support people and everybody around us in our society. That message is, is, a, is a really big disconnect, in my opinion, of what's happened in our society. Babies are born expecting X, Y, Z. <laughs> so straight away, of course, that societies shape each other. We're shaped by those around us and we shape them too. Uh, so they are going to have to conform to the way we live today. Uh, but if we can understand what their needs are, then we can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and our own too. And we can sort of adjust that to a modern context as well. So we might not be able to do all of the things, but we can pick out those which we feel we have the ability to do to create the best possible way to provide that for bubs. So what is that XYZ in a nutshell for what our babies expecting when they arrive that they've always expected? Well, in a nutshell, they're expecting to be held 24-7 in contact with mum's naked body. <laughs> in true essence, they're expecting to be birthed and lifted up onto mum's skin to skin straight away, do the breast crawl up to the breast, latch on, be exclusively breastfed and to be held and carried. So, Humans are a carrying species, not a cache species of mammal. So people might be familiar with the terms of baby wearing and um, baby carrying wraps and carriers and stretchy wraps and stuff. Cache species are the ones that put them down in a burrow or a hole or like a bird, they leave the baby in the nest and they go out and find worms and bring them back. So babies are not expecting to be put down in their cot or their bassinet and they're expecting to have un fettered access to breast milk like they did with the umbilical cord feeding them, fourth trimester stuff, but also nine months in, nine months out, you know, that sort of stuff. Also the research we have about the first thousand days, which is almost three years, which is still barely scratching the surface of what we know about childhood development and how the brain best develops. Uh, doesn't mean everyone has to be naked all the time carrying their baby and never put it down. But if you can understand the context the baby is coming into the world from, you can adjust it accordingly, like you said. <laughs> you don't have to care baby wear 24-7 or be naked 24-7, but you need to know how to optimise your baby's reflexes to, to get the, you know, calm your baby or to get the best sort of feed for your baby or a more effective swallow for your baby. And help them with their bowels or um, understand if, if they have reflux that that's not normal and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, oh, so many things. So I think I would love to jump into the physiology of Bub's um, latch and then 
the longer so there's two things there i think there's like mum's health and nutrition and you can choose which way we go and then there's also bub's jaw structure and latch so that um it was a long term oreo my facial is it <laughs> am i saying that right yeah. well there's a few different ways to a few different terms but orofacial myology or some people call it myofunctional therapy that's the the concept that's so key in my opinion if we're looking at how someone functions or how a baby functions we need to understand the function and the premises behind that and the physiology of that movement that goes with the anatomy so statistically tongue tie is becoming more common and is, and is a fair chunk of my work because of very many reasons uh, but also the other anatomical challenges that babies can face with having a bit more of a setback chin or overusing the wrong muscles, um, having instrumental delivery or mum having... Babies are restricted in their movement in utero for a lot of reasons these days. So that's aside from tongue tie, that's a mum's health thing as well as a whole society thing. But babies are, are having... They're being born less less strong and less agile and they're having less movement in utero. So there's loads of different factors that go with that facial jaw structure stuff but also if mums are mouth breathing or have um, snoring when they're pregnant so a lot of people don't know about that but that impacts your baby's facial structure and their jaw structure in utero so the amount of oxygen that they get from the type of breathing that you're doing has a big impact so that might be a key take-home message i haven't planned actually but if you are a mouth breather as a mum that's something that you might want to follow up with with some research off my Facebook <laughs> page. Yeah. Uh, and that, that can also impact how your baby feeds because feeding is intricately connected. Suck, swallow, breathe is very... It's suck, swallow, breathe rhythmicity and that coordination is the essence of how babies feed, whether it's on the bottle or the breast. And there are a few different ways that, you know, sometimes that doesn't quite work as sharply as it should. The mums, there are so many reasons of, of like sort of symptoms that you might see if something's not... You know, if we could tweak something there. Uh, but going with your gut is the most important thing, in my opinion, as a mum, because sometimes you can't put your finger on it and you're not trained in it and you don't necessarily, you don't need to know, but you know something's up or something's not right or something feels a bit off, it might not be pain, it might, it might not even be sort of colicky symptoms with the baby, but just something doesn't sit right with you totally. And, and we second-guess ourselves so much as new parents, but even as experienced parents, I see people come in with their fifth child. Um, I had a woman in recently, and her she'd had fine journey with her previous four, and she thought by now she should have been able to figure it out. But this child was different, and it did have something different going on. Uh, and you know, even even with all that experience, she still sort of battled herself as to whether she should trust her judgment on this or not. And she was perfectly spot on. And even though she didn't know what she was describing, she could describe it to a T exactly what was happening to that child. So. But it, when we haven't had kids before, we're not necessarily used to listening to that part of ourselves. And sometimes we've spent a lot of time deliberately ignoring our intuition and having that really uh, explicitly discouraged um, as, as women, as modern citizens, as there's lots of different reasons why. Um, but as cert certainly as consumers of healthcare, it's not usually encouraged either. So... There's a lot, so many layers going on. But if ever something doesn't feel right, it's, it's really important to, to follow that up. That might not even be a problem or it might be such a minor thing, but it's not a waste of my time to have that chat. Yeah, sure. that's right, just to reach out and find out because it is, if it is a minor thing, it can make a huge difference. And if it yes. is a more major thing, then it can also make such a huge difference. And the yeah. earlier the better, I guess. The earlier something's addressed, yes. the easier 
it's going yes to absolutely yeah I often say to parents when they ask that question like when's a good time to see you if something's not right I think well you'll probably know you'll know the answer to that people don't like that answer you will know but also sort of by six to eight weeks is a really good time because you've given yourself time to get to know your baby a little bit and things are very hard in the in the start for lots of reasons sometimes you know when you're getting used to how you're juggling your sleep and your partner or your family or whatever else is going on as well as getting to know the baby the baby needs to get to know you and even if it's your third child or fifth, you know, you still never met each other outside the womb and tried to feed together. So, but, but usually by about that time, people get an idea if they've been able to resolve things or not. And I think it's important not to let it go on too long because it usually compounds and, and both members, but also the whole family sort of form other ways of compensating for it. And that can be harder sometimes. It's that those workarounds that people come up with that are very clever, they can be hard to get sometimes yeah so good to sort of catch it yeah so always follow that intuition and and follow something up so i would love to hear um a bit more about, oh yeah sorry go i'd love to hear a bit more about, no i was just gonna say that being said i see people with breastfeeding issues sorry even with toddlers so it's never too late if you think something's a bit different or you have a question you can still bring your toddlers in oh, that's good yeah that's a good point because you might think once they're toddlers, I'm still breastfeeding a toddler and so it would be easy to go, oh, I'm not going to breastfeed for much longer and so it's not going to matter. But it could actually, that issue with breastfeeding could indicate something else going on that's going to persist for the child and it, that indicator might lead you to that um, symptom earlier, I guess. Yes. So speaking of that sort of thing, I would love to hear your thoughts on why statistically there are more tongue ties, why the bottom jaw is set back a bit more, why our jaws. Hey there, I'm Julia. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. Different, more often, and how because that's impacting breastfeeding, um, a little bit of how that can go on to impact a child's long-term health as well. I don't feel I can do this topic justice in the time we have, but I might to say a few things that lead people to further resources. There are some good books on the topic and some interesting websites. There is some really interesting research, but there's also a need for a lot more too. So uh, people talk about things like the MTHFR gene and folic acid and um, glyphosate in Roundup chemical and a few other things like that, and we do have some indicators of how those things impact cellular methylation at a very base cell level um, when the baby is developing. There, there are... In utero, sorry, in utero. So it does get a little bit complex here <laughs> because anything that affects in utero development can have a possible impact on the baby and can, in theory, contribute to things like a tongue tie. A tongue tie... In, by definition, is an interesting topic in itself too. Uh, and again, outside of the scope of what we'll have time for, but the existence of a frenulum is not problematic and that is a normal human um, piece of anatomy. So that there is where some people get hung up on 
defining what is a tongue tie, what makes it a tongue tie, what makes it restrictive. So for people uh, that don't know, the frenulum is the little bit of skin that sits on, on the tongue and attaches it. Yeah, the little string under your tongue. If you open your mouth as wide as you can and lift your tongue up to the roof, we also we have uh, or sometimes have seven frenula in our mouth. So there's upper lip, lower lip, upper cheeks on each side and lower cheeks on each side as well as the tongue. And some babies are born with those structures being tighter or shorter than others. And uh, it's, it's like the webbing between your fingers if it, in utero when a baby's developing if it didn't dissolve away properly. So when the cells are splitting and dividing and they go from two to four and multiplying, etc., then that skin under the tongue should dissolve away when the structure is, is all one big blob. And the tongue is formed, the tongue should separate and form separate to the jaw. And for some kids, a little bit is left over. So it's a remnant tissue that didn't dissolve away. There are some interesting theories about why that's happening so much now these days. But there's also really interesting research showing how many tongue-tied babies have tongue-tied adult parents who didn't know that they were tongue-tied too. So... That's quite a cool topic of conversation too. <laughs> Is this linking back to nutrition? So I, as we talked about beforehand, I have a passion in nutrition as well, but within a holistic context. Um, you need to serve a nice, warm, nourishing meal in a nice, warm, nourishing emotional environment to give that like a bit of context. But um, So I've looked a lot into Western A. Price, which my listeners have probably heard me talk about, unless you've just tuned in, so welcome if you have. Um, And Western A. Price was a dentist who looked at the dental structure and health of people eating a traditional diet, whether that be an agricultural traditional diet or a more foraging semi-agricultural diet. Um, and so he was really fascinated. He was doing this at a time when people were transitioning to a more industrial agricultural diet. So he could do comparisons within a couple of hundred kilometres. And yeah, he noticed straight away the change in, in jaw structure and dental structure. There wasn't, there was crowding of the teeth, dental cavities, breathing issues. So is this linked in as well with the research that you're seeing, the modern research? 100%. So professionals who are leaders in the field in research across different medical specialties as well as different therapy specialties, it's important to say that they still hotly debate the details of this. Even the leaders who have done the most in-depth randomised control trials at the top, we, we all still debate this a lot. So there is definitely no yes, no answers at all to do with understanding um, the human body at all. Um, and textbooks get rewritten all the time. <laughs> and new organs get found in the human body. Not all the time, but sometimes. Just lost you. So the jaw back. structure. Oh, can you hear me there, yeah, Shelly? Yeah. yeah, I can hear you. Oh. I think, uh, sorry. What I, I, I might do back. is I'm just going to stop the video and that might help with the audio. I'll try that. All right, can you, oh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Shelley. Have you got me there? Maybe if you, yeah, I can hear you, yep. Okay. Uh, so the way, so this is also a chicken and the egg conversation too uh, because 
It is also thought that the decline in our jaw size, which, which I'd like to talk a bit more about, that that can also be contributing to the high incidence of tooth bite. So what's happening, as you said, is the hu humans are devolving rapidly. Uh, and it's not even evolution, it's epigenetics. So our listeners might be familiar with how our uh, environment shapes our genes. Is that something that you've um, sort of come across, Shelley? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, environment, nutrition. Yeah. And Western Price uh, has, has some cool, you know, followers of him have been some interesting things. But, so he showed it really well, how you were just saying uh, that, that the... In Africa, oh, sorry, um, the indigenous American tribes who still, who we studied at the time and at different places around the world, they were able to maintain chewing in their diet and they chewed a certain amount of rougher or firmer food or tougher foods and maintained straight teeth and big bones and big jaws. So how we move our muscle shapes our bones and muscle moves bone. So these days people are being born... Well, people are using dummies and bottles and have been formula fed. Most of us were formula fed in, in the 70s and 80s um, and huge amount of people before that. So there's lots of things that have been ha happened in our history that has been passed on in our genes that we know that research shows happens. Uh, and so that also comes from what your parents did and what they were fed as babies and children uh, and also the grandparents who were fed condensed milk and things like that as babies instead of formula or breast milk. Uh, but it also includes all not really having foods that need chewing much these days. So that's a big part of what I do as an orofacial myologist and it's um, speech pathologists do who are orofacial myologists is teaching chewing and how to chew and how to swallow and the importance of chewing and how that actually grows your face but how, very importantly, how your face shapes your airway and your breathing and how that impacts your brain and your health and your moods and your fashion. Uh, yeah, so it sounds very scary, but there's actually, you know, it has, it's hugely impactful to the human body. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect that I haven't actually looked into much is the chewing, although I've heard about it a little bit. I haven't read lots that, yeah, the way we're eating. And it is a bit of a feedback loop, like you said. So when you're chewing, yes. your airways are developing in a way, and then when you're breathing well, that in turn affects the development and so so forth but yeah western price more looked at the amount yeah. of nutrients in a um, traditional diet no matter whether it had fermented grains and meat and dairy or whether it just had meat and vegetables or whatever it was in all around the world he went to so many countries and um but what they had in common was 10 times more fat soluble vitamins um from animal yes. sources like A, D, E, and K, and then four times more minerals from plants and animal sources as well. So yeah, he was just, and then comparing that to a, a tradition, uh, an industrial diet. Sorry. So yeah, then you're yes. looking at, I guess, the epigenetics is when that happens over a number of generations. And Sally Fallon, who wrote Nourishing Traditions and is a huge spokesperson for Western Price, says she just looking at it in her family and then other families that she's uh, seen work with the Western A. Price diet, that her 
family, she came in with a certain level of degeneration. So Western A. Price called it degeneration, uh, human yeah. degeneration. And then she tried to follow a certain nutrient-dense diet and lifestyle and she could see that her kids had improved somewhat from her degeneration and now she's hoping with her grandchildren that there'll be that next level. So it might take a couple of generations to come regenerate i guess yes. we're looking at regenerative yes and regenerative humans as well and we know humans have an amazing capacity for regeneration but if we don't stop our decline it's going to be exponentially harder so you can see that in families well i can see that in families who come to my clinic even you can see sometimes i'm really lucky and i do get four generations in i have had that before that's so cool but often i'll get mum come in and her she'll bring her mum so she'll bring the baby's grandma and the newborn baby and you can you can see the differences over time. There's also things we do in our life that change and shape our face. The mouth breathing can change your face over your lifetime too. But but if you if you look at any family, you can track the decline of the jaws and you can see the new or the young kids with smaller airways, narrower faces, long skinny faces, set back jaws, crowded teeth, and you can see the you know grandparents, great grandparents more so now that that don't have any crowding at all. Uh, so there, there are lots of other factors at play, but, but when you take those out, yeah, those, those sort of key things persist in Western civilization, so to speak, or in first world countries or whatever people want to call it, but certainly in industrialised cultures. So uh, I, for breastfeeding and infant feeding, the human ideal is good occlusion so your mandible your lower jaw being fairly far forward so there's lots of room to breathe behind the back of that jaw so when you have a setback chin which lots of us think is normal and it's not the baby has a reduced capacity to breathe behind that jaw so while they're trying to breastfeed they're not able to get their chin very far forward they're causing them lots of pain they'll often have a higher narrow arched palate in the maxilla in the top jaw uh, so the nipple has like it's poked up into the high roof Babies are also struggling to breathe and get enough air in that suck, swallow, breathe coordination cycle. They have to be able to swallow and breathe very closely together that adults can't do. They're, and babies are also obligate nose breathers. So if you have a really high roof of your mouth, that squishes your nasal space. You don't have much room for air to get through your nose. And if on top of that you don't have much room to get air behind your lower jaw, breastfeeding can be very hard or drinking milk at all as a baby can be hard. So that does have quite big implications for how we parent. And those kids are the ones that are wakeful at night, have sleep apnea, mouth breathe, toss and turn or sweat in their sleep or make any sounds or squeaks or snores or so many other things and reflux and all sorts of other things can play into that too. But we, we need to be detectives for it because we need to be helping these kids early, in my opinion. Mm. So there's a few things there. So for you, would you recommend that ideally? So if we've got someone sitting here going, oh my goodness, I really want to work out how I can prevent this for my next child yeah. as much as possible or my first child or next child. Mm. Do you think that someone can sort of like nutrient load and work on their own breathing to make huge improvements? And then I guess the next question after that would be, if they've got a child, so I know I need to do some work with my eldest because she's probably still a mouth breather. Um, not too drastically, but there's some issues there. So then if someone's got a child and they're thinking, oh, yeah, I need to get onto this, I'd love to hear um, some of the success stories, I guess, of addressing it. So, yeah, looking at prenatal nutrition and prevention and then working with what you've got post 
this noise? Yeah, so of course there's a lot of factors we can't control too. So sometimes more information is more, is more depressing because it just highlights the things that you wish were different and you can't change sometimes. So that's also a factor too. Uh, as a parent, you know, we need to not overload ourselves with the things that we can't change. So there's things we can do to optimise though. Like you said, prenatal nutrition is huge. Mum's nutrition before conception is even more huge, in my opinion, from the research that we have. So it's starting way back. And I think that people don't really even know what that means sometimes. Like I know when I was younger, I'd heard people say, get healthy before you conceive. And I didn't really know what that meant. I thought like, oh, yeah, I jog, I eat well. <laughs> um, but finding out what that really means and what, what that specifically you know, entails, I think is a good idea. Um, and be, making sure that you have bioavailable bio sources of nutrition. So some synthetic vitamins are not well utilised in the body and different people use them better than others. So that's another discussion too. Um, and there are a few different practitioners that can help with that stuff as well. Uh, as well as the fat-soluble vitamins, uh, zinc, all those sorts of simple minerals that we think people completely overlook, I think, these days. There's an awesome book by Dr. Stephen Lynn called The Dental Diet, yes. um, which is heavily influenced by Western Price as well, yeah. which sort of captures some of that, I guess, in an accessible way for people. Yeah. Um, there's a book called The Postnatal Depletion Cure that parents might like. If they've already had a child, they should be addressing everything in that book <laughs> before they think about conceiving. Um, that's by Dr. Oscar Serilak, who has a practice up at Byron Bay. He's a GP. Uh, so there are people there that can help you and I can help you with some and there are lots of other people around. But uh, finding someone to have that conversation with and finding some details for your situation I think is really important. We can't necessarily switch on or off the apoptosis that happens under that tongue tie, that frenulum that, that can lead to that. Uh, we can't control all the factors. So... You know, we can recognise and control the ones that, that we can yeah. identify. And I guess that's why nutrition is handy. It can be really empowering because it is something that we can somewhat yes. control, whereas the yes. genetic expression is going to be influenced by so, so many factors over such a wide amount of time that, yeah, that's where the nutrition is um, empowering. I'll yeah. put a link in for people to Dr. Stephen Lin, who, yeah, is on the Central Coast, a uh, holistic dentist. Also, for anyone who hasn't seen, I did a podcast with Oscar Saralak a couple of podcasts ago, maybe five ago, I can't remember now, and talked about his book, Postpartum depletion cure so yeah looking at so this is more than just going down to your local chemist or health food store and getting yes. a multivitamin off the store and yes superfoods in your smoothie this is looking at nutrient dense foods across the board and then really high quality bioavailable supplements so finding a yes which should really be individualized as well as you're yeah. saying yeah. yeah yeah and yeah so you're gonna really set yourself up so not only mum but also baby for the best start because so many women now are experiencing postpartum depletion in lots of ways whether that's just general depletion nutrient deficiency emotional you know anxiety things like that or autoimmune issues and then nothing sorry go ahead Shelley. No, 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 go. and then looking at bub's um jaw structure too so yeah setting yourself up there 
Yes. And it, just because your baby has a set back chin or their lips don't close easily doesn't mean they have a tongue tie, but that can be a key factor uh, as well as any tight muscles or head turning preference, any mucusy stools, green poos, reflux or spit up, spotty skin, rash, cradle cap, eczema, uh, sucking blisters on the lips is a big one that people don't realise is, is not part of the design. Uh, any, any of those things warrant investigation. And, and there's no one thing that causes those, but we need to make sure that we're accounting for them. So something else that mums often don't realise with, with postnatal depletion, so say between having children after their first is how long that can persist um, and that things like Dr Oscar teaches about, you know, that our copper levels triple in pregnancy, or they can, uh, which rapidly depletes our zinc, which rapidly depletes your gut health, which affects so many other things. So... Uh, Mom, as mums, sometimes we don't realise that when we are tired or run down or stressed that that actually kills off some good bacteria in our gut which directly impacts the microbiome and the gut health of your new baby, especially if they're exclusively breastfed in that early period before um, introducing family foods. So even though we might think that we're well and we're doing well, if, uh, if there's so many things that can actually affect your microbiome and, and come out as colic, so-called colic, uh, in a baby. So they're things that we can talk about too. Um, there's also, people don't realise that 50% of reflux is cow's milk protein intolerance statistically either because of the size of the beta-lactoglobulin molecule. So that's another conversation if anyone in your family has ever had any sort of seemingly lactose intolerance symptoms. It's important to discuss that on the protein component, not just lactose. And things like that, there's sorts of questions that um, sometimes people don't know you know the ask <laughs> yeah that's right yeah um hmm, i always have so many questions going through my mind <laughs> i'm not sure if i answered your question there initially there shelly we've gone off on a tangent a little bit no no that's fine um also oh yeah i wanted to remind listeners that there was there's also a great book called real food for pregnancy i don't know if you've heard of that Alyssa by um mm. lily nichols she's a canadian nutritionist so she's very much about this real food um very research-based i think you'd love her as well so she talks right. yeah, a lot about um the preconception and then during pregnancy and postpartum as well and so yeah i think that people don't realize how much their nutrient needs are in pregnancy i mean in postpartum and if they're breastfeeding as well they actually go up quite a bit and people you'll often hear people say that what you eat doesn't affect your breast milk and breastfeeding so that it might be a timely segue to address that that that's actually not true either <laughs> so Sometimes the reasoning is used that women in um, pre-industrialised countries or developing nations can still breastfeed and they might have, not have access to much and they might eat a cup of rice a day and they can still breastfeed. Um, that's not exactly what the science says. So not everything you eat goes through your breast milk. It's quite a far lot more complicated than that. There are five different paracellular pathways and things don't just pass through from your gut. But lots of things do. And there are fat-soluble vitamins versus water-soluble vitamins. There are lots of different, different you know, differences in the way that our nutrition impacts our baby or not. Uh, people have often heard about, you know, starting solids to boost the iron, um, but there are so many things that you do need to still be mindful of to be a healthy mum, but to be a healthy breastfeeder as well. <laughs> so... 
that's also quite a detailed conversation as well. You know, um, there's a lot of information around that. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you only eat junk food that you shouldn't breastfeed. Absolutely not, because there are so many components in breast milk that are irreplaceable that ha haven't been replicated, um, that are not in formula. So any and all breast milk is worth it. There's no bad breast milk. Um, but there are some nutrients that we should sort of be thinking of a bit more than others. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so important. There is no bad breast milk. I really want to emphasize that. Yeah, it's always, breast milk will always be better if that's what you want to do and you feel like you can manage that. And if that's right, and people, and even if it's, a, if it's a really small amount, every drop counts. And something that I find quite cool is human milk oligosaccharide. So that's prebiotics. So sometimes people can connect to that because we all know about probiotics these days. But prebiotics feed your good bacteria, which regulate your brain and your body and your health and your immune system. And no one wants a colicky baby, right? Everyone knows what colic is. And <laughs> um, so even if you're just giving a drop a day of breast milk, it's hugely packed with millions of cells of prebiotics that can't be replicated anywhere else in um in our world. So and, and the ones that are added to formula are totally different. So that those human milk oligosaccharides are the reason alone to breastfeed because that programs your baby's body and brain and immunity and future, <laughs> even if it's a drop a day. <laughs> yeah, that's really important. That's what I wanted yeah. to talk about before you reminded me, the gut health and the importance of gut health and how that really ties into so many things like being a lactation consultant does. So it ties into your emotional health, mental health, your support structures, plus the food you're eating, plus the gut health you inherited from your parents, what you developed over your life, and then pass, passing on to your child. And so many yeah. things seem to come back to gut health these days. Yes. It's the second brain. It really is the seat of so many bodily functions we've discovered. And a lot of people don't know that because that research has come out in the last three to five years or even 10 years. So a lot of health professionals, you know, find it hard to keep up with that because there are so many papers coming out every single day. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's foundational as well, that if there was, someone was thinking, okay, I just want to take this easy, I don't want to be overwhelmed, but I do want to slowly make those steps towards better health for myself and Bob to work on gut health by introducing, well, eliminating any, seeing someone to see what they might need to eliminate. And then also, sorry, I'm just going to cancel this update. Um, and then also looking at prebiotics and probiotics and cultured foods that might suit them as well. And working on gut health could be a nice, simple way to just slowly start building up all overall health. What do you think? Yeah. And a caveat to that is, sorry? And is, or is that something to avoid in early breastfeeding because it could overwhelm the system a bit? I think that's an interesting conversation because anything that overwhelms a mum is counterproductive, right? But at the same time, optimising your health is super paramount to healing and regeneration and to the baby too. So I guess it's a bit of a fine line and that'll be different for different people. I've had people where their baby's really allergic to dairy and they weren't able to, you know, feel like they could cope with cutting that from their diet at that time. And that's, you know, everybody's journey is going to be so different depending on your social supports and your structure. And that's not just about the mum. So this is an interesting sort of power brokerage debate too because mums 
are meant to be being supported by their whole family and their whole village. So if you're the only one feeding yourself and you're the one propping up your whole family or your whole village, you don't have as many resources to tweak what you can and can't eat. So that's, and, and money. And so it's a really tricky situation for some people. Um, they can't afford to eat what they would like <laughs> sometimes or can't make it. So, but there are really simple, cheap things that you can do that are worth it. And, and there are alternatives to some key things that we can change that don't cost money. Some people worry that they know that gluten's bad for them, but gluten-free things are expensive. But it, it's not sort of that simple. There's lots of other things you can do. Yeah. yeah. And so you do actually work with mums doing meal planning as well. You do help with uh, meal planning for them and looking at what they're eating. And do you work with young children also? Yeah, I do. I don't uh, meal plan really specifically so much as I work with the ins and outs of what and why, I guess you could say, um, and refer to people to fill in really specific details for the, for the meal planning part. Uh, so but my extra training in nutrition sort of gives me the... the the foundation to have those discussions with people uh, in a little bit of a broader way. So with things like fermented food, sometimes babies are reacting to naturally occurring food chemicals and those fermented foods might be really high in salicylates, which are, which are healthy and fine if you don't react to them. So, uh, you know, we need to have a conversation about what that is, what that might be, uh, could that be your thing, <laughs> why, what symptoms have come up that have, might have indicated that to me. Uh, and sort of unpack a little bit, direct them to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital Research, stuff like that, um, and talk about what, what they might tweak or might not tweak and where they could get further details, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a minefield. There's a lot of options out there and, and no one's expect, you know, mums and parents are not expected to know all the options of things that could be going on. So I guess that's why you call on someone else. <laughs> yeah, and then you can help <laughs> guide someone else you could refer on to help guide to do take something out or put something in and just start to slowly feel how that feels for someone. It yeah, and most parents can figure it out, but sometimes it's very overwhelming. Going, I feel like I can't eat anything. <laughs> yes, it took me until my second baby to know for sure that I don't deal with legumes very well, and therefore my baby doesn't. So eating lentils ah. um, in the first couple of months is a no-go. I'm not a big lentil lover anyway, so that's lucky. But um, yeah, it was not one that I'd heard yeah. of until I experienced it myself. And it's that sort of thing, like you said, for someone it might be the salicylates in certain food, fruit mm -hmm. and vegetables or fermented foods. For someone else, it might be lactose or casein protein and dairy. For everyone, it's going to be something different. It could be gluten. Yeah. Some people haven't heard of FODMAPs and, you know, the old wives' tale that cabbage and legumes and things are bad for the baby or only if mum has FODMAPs issues. <laughs> so, yes. you know, that's a conversation to unpack there too. Yeah, and, and on that, there are no foods that we say to avoid strictly, but... I have some cool visuals to show how babies are born with quite wide paracellular junctions in the interstitium in their small intestine. So they're sort of born with, some listeners might be familiar with the term leaky gut. And babies are born with leaky gut by design because they're expecting only breast milk and only trusted foods to go in and they're expecting mum's breast milk to be well filtered by her own gut. So we work from that premise 
it's not even necessarily the food's fault. It's sometimes it's the poor filtration systems, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> the poor nutrition. Yeah. That's so interesting uh, that the way you've described that connection to mum's leaky gut to bub's natural open junctions there. Mm. My own experience too, because I've had to do a lot of work to heal my own leaky gut. Um, yeah. And the issues, I can think back now to issues that may have been caused from that. Yeah, yes, it's very multifactorial too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking a lot into the gaps um, philosophy, not necessarily sticking to it. Yeah. Strictly, but looking into that philosophy for gut healing. And so far, it's helping me a lot. So, um, anyone that follows me on social media will see. Uh, lately, I talk a lot about bone broth, but lately, I've been talking about meat stews and how that can impact um, and assist leaky gut. And lots of other yeah. things around that. And I, yeah, I'll be sharing more about that as I go on that journey. Awesome. So then with children, with toddlers and children, what, and then I'm mindful of the time. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you liaise and network with other practitioners to help parents get their children assessed and maybe start to find some therapies that can help with um, a jaw structure, maybe like a setback jaw or a tongue tie or crowded teeth and why that's important to do that early. Cause a lot of, it's quite mm. new. A lot of people don't even know that that's a thing. They think, Oh, we'll just pop some braces or Invisalign on when they're a teenager, but there's a lot you can yeah. do beforehand also for the airway. Right. And 80% of our jaw growth is done by the time you're six. So that's probably a key fact to summarise why I care. <laughs> yeah. uh, and everything else is catch up after that, which is fine. And, uh, you know, a lot of us don't get to it until that point. That's okay. Uh, and that is also sort of debated about what you can do at what age and why. Um, a lot of orthodontics, you know, didn't used to happen until we were 16 and things like that. So just aware that every day older you are, you know, the more you're playing catch up. <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's urgent. You'd have to panic right now. But every swallow shapes your face and we swallow 900 to 2,000 times a day. So if you can tweak your swallow when you're younger right. <laughs> and improve your breathing and shut your mouth now, <laughs> that shape, it's cheap orthodontics. So the tongue should be your palate expander. Your mouth should be closed at rest. When you're talking or chewing. <laughs> but even how you chew shapes your face, so any way. So at, uh, a key take-home message was we all should have our... Tongue, our mouth closed, lips closed, tongue up, breathing through the nose. That's like the big three. Tongue up, lips closed, breathe through your nose. And any deviation from that is creating a pathology um, of different degrees. Some people have a big problem with it and some people don't. It might be more minor. And some people have um, allergies, tonsils, adenoids, systemic inflammation that comes from their gut health. Their reflux might be a problem from their gut health or their uh, inflammation might be from other causes like allergy or, um, you know, airborne allergies, obviously, is a factor if you can't breathe through your nose, you're going to breathe through your mouth, you have itchy eyes, etc., etc. So lots and lots of different factors. So an interdisciplinary team is everything. So uh, no one practitioner can ever do everything and we can never know everything. No one in the world can. But working with people who are lifelong learners, in my opinion, is key. So people who are committed to professional development, who are humble, who are happy to learn, happy to take on new information, actively seek it and invest of their own time and money to pursue that ongoing learning. I think that's how you choose practitioners. <laughs> that's how I choose practitioners yeah. for my family um, for success. 
people who are willing to collaborate with each other and work together communicate well. Uh, I only work in a team, even though I'm a sole practitioner. Um, everybody needs others. And sometimes people might be like, oh, you're just sending me around to the next place and the next place. But, you know, we always talk about why that other person might be part of the team um, because the human body, you know, has to be looked at as a whole. You don't have to do it all now, uh, but you need to sort of be detectives together to, and, and parents, you know, you own the journey, you go with your dad, it's your story. But you need to choose which, sort of what's the most important thing first, I guess, sometimes, uh, to break that negative cycle that might be happening or just intercept it and send it back the other way. Work smarter, not harder. She's where to <laughs> mm. And so with young children, is it a, a dentist that's a holistic sort of dentist like Stephen Lynn, like that sort of style that you would normally refer someone to with a toddler that was having these symptoms or is it fairly wide? Normally I'd assess them myself first, yeah, because so an initial assessment's usually sort of minimum one and a half hours, two hours, sometimes three hours to really look at all the stuff. So then we choose for that child. We sort of see what's going on for that child and discuss, you know, where it could start. Uh, sometimes it's someone local, sometimes it's further afield. And with it, there's so many different providers that that could be. It could be an ear, nose and throat doctor. It could be a paediatrician who specialises um, in allergy or gut health or autism spectrum. Sometimes parents don't realise what the most urgent issue might be actually and you know they, they come with a symptom and actually that's symptomatic of something else that is much much more pressing sometimes it is as simple as going to the dentist but before you ever go and pursuing a tongue tie release or anything like that you need to do my functional therapy prehabilitation and rehabilitation so there's a whole therapy process that goes with changing function whatever that is uh and sometimes it's a chiropractor or an osteopath to do, give us a little bit more diagnostics. Sometimes it's the dentist to have a look at an enamel hyperplasia so that we can ascertain what of that is from mouth breathing, what of that is from reflux. We might go back to the nutritional tweaks of things to work on that reflux or we might be able to clear the nose to get that mouth closed or we might be able to do some muscle work to, to change the jaw function or the swallowing. Uh, and sometimes it's oral surgery or maxillofacial surgery. ENT surgery is a fairly common one. Um, sometimes it's GPs and medication. Sometimes it's naturopaths, body worker, like I said. There's so many different um, areas. Sometimes it's a dietitian um, or a psychologist that works on, you know, works with diagnosis. Sometimes you have to go do a few different other therapies first and then come back. So that's a, so a pretty broad answer. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, a good picture. Yeah, no, that's... So if someone came to you and was wondering what that might look like, that could be, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I send people away to go do palate expansion. So they need to do early orthodontics or I give them devices that are early orthodontics that are interceptive my functional appliances. So that are sort of like cheap ortho. <laughs> you start there to sort of training some function because, as I said, your tongue should be your palate expander, your lips should be your braces. And nasal breathing should be part of what's helping grow your jaws. And there, there, you know, it's not just that. Um, but structurally and physically in the body, there are things that we can do and therapies we can do to, to, to sort of do cheap, low-risk early intervention, I guess, while people are planning what they need to do going forward or while they're dealing with the other stuff, like their allergy or their cut or their reflux or their whatever. <laughs> it's not things that are keeping them, you know, that way. Yeah, 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 that's good. Well, 
it's almost, I think it's been about an hour. Do you have a quick little story, like a success story that was kind of stuck with you? I'm sure there's a few really beautiful stories you have, but any like family coming to you and then going on to either around breastfeeding or around with a young child, toddler, um, and some, yeah, quite a big turnaround that affected their health and family life. So many. I've seen kids, we've been able to get kids who started out life, you know, really poor feeders being able to breastfeed for three, four more years and just do amazing things and change their facial structure by the way that they've been able to get functional feeding going. Uh, I've seen families be able to get off all their reflux meds and get off all their eczema medication by changing what they're doing with their with their diet and their feeding stuff. Um, I'm really excitedly, you know, around opening up kids' airways, kids who just don't sleep or fussy sleepers, fussy kids, high-needs kids, sensitive babies, suddenly being able to breathe and suddenly being able to sleep, which just changes parents' lives, as we all know <laughs> how important sleep is. Uh, it, it just it changes people's lives, this stuff, getting a good diagnosis or getting a, a real plan or getting to the root of what's going on. Uh, it can just change your world. It can, I've seen kids be undiagnosed with autism and ADHD because we know that 70% of ADHD is mouth breathing and oxygenation issues with breathing. Uh, now so there's so many ways that we can turn lives around and you can't necessarily you know reverse an autism diagnosis but you can sometimes change a person's quality of life or you can't get back breastfeeding sometimes if you've let it go too long you know you find it too hard to go back but you can really change that child's function and improve their quality of life and improve their sleep and you know getting rid of those symptoms that that cause screaming babies <laughs> and everybody knows how much of a difference that can make so there's always hope. There is always someone who can help you. And it might not be me, but there's always someone out there who specialises in your thing. You just have to keep questioning until you find them. <laughs> I love that. I love that there's always hope. And I love that, yeah, it doesn't matter where you're at, like whether you're just in your early weeks or months or days of breastfeeding, you can get some hope. Or whether you're looking back going, oh, I wish I had known that. As we're talking, thinking, oh, I wish I had known that this was my first. My second was much easier. But... Um, it's also inspired me that I might have to look into a few more things with her, even though we've been trying to do some here at home, tweaking stuff that's making a difference. I think I need to do a bit more. And that's what I like. I can even go, okay, even with my five-year-old, I there's still things I can do. Or someone might be there with their three-year-old going, oh, I can still start now. So even though it can feel overwhelming, like there's so yeah. many aspects, it's also hopeful and empowering that you can start any, wherever you are and still yes. have, have um, huge impacts and improve your quality of life greatly. That's right. And sometimes it's really minor, really, really minor little thing that we can implement that makes a huge difference too. It doesn't have to be a surgery. <laughs> yeah, or a huge change of diet yeah. might be something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it might not even be that. It might just be a really small little tool, tip, trick, twist yeah. that changes the trajectory of how, how things are going forward. Uh, two millimetres, as they say, that two millimetres might not seem like much now, but when you zoom out, that two millimetres could like look like a few metres around the circle. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good analogy. Important. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you very much you. for being with me today, Shelley. Well, thank you. So if people want to find out more about you, I also want to say before you share where people can find you that Alyssa has 
some a lot i've only just started going through them a lot of what look like really great resources on her website um a lot she's <laughs> an avid researcher and what i love about avid researchers is that it takes a little bit of the work out for me it's another reason i love lily nichols who i talked about as well because she's an avid researcher i can go oh i just yeah you find people like you say people to collaborate with that you trust really dedicate themselves to these things and then it takes you don't need to redo that work then you can share that work and and expand on that so if people yes. want to uh just find out a bit more about with you what you offer possibly work with you where can they find you i think the easiest way if you have facebook is there um got to the same uh, latch pmq so the Facebook name is Latch Lactation Orofacial Myology and Education uh, or the website is latchlc.com uh, and there's a link to the Facebook there and you can inbox me or email me that way. Uh, and uh, I've got a bit of a wait, so I apologise if I'm a little bit slow and didn't have to, but please um, always message and follow up with me. Uh, it's really important to sometimes connect with those Facebook feeds, like you're saying, and really because of people that um, sort of resonate with you, even if you don't contact that practitioner, you can sometimes take away some reading from their interests that might direct you to. So uh, even if people don't wish to follow up with me specifically, I like to share a breadth of information on my Facebook that may be of use to people for different reasons, or sometimes I'll have a spate of people ask me a certain question, so I'll post about that. Uh, or something that's topical to my client. So I might be posting something for a client on my Facebook page that, that may be relevant to you too. That might be useful. Wonderful. Thank Otherwise, you. in the shared website, sorry, in the website, those shared folders might be useful. Yeah, and I'll pop all those links. I'll pop up the Facebook page and I'll pop up uh, your web page. And do you work with people, you work with people online as well as in person, is that right? Yes, correct, yeah. Okay, great. And I'll also put up some links to um, the different people we've talked about as well. Uh, if people want. Thanks, Shelley. Well, thank you, Alyssa. Thanks so much for your time. We could talk about this all day. Thank you for your patience with me trying to squeeze it all in. <laughs> oh, no. Thank you for taking the time out to share. Obviously, really passionate about it and it comes across. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I really hope there was something there for you. Please feel free to head on over to Instagram and Facebook pages, Pollination Mamas, and leave your thoughts, ideas, inspirations, feedback. I'd also really love for this to partly be a collaborative experience for all of you out there listening and to hear what topics, ideas for guest speakers that you might have. And also, if you feel to, I would really appreciate if you head on over to iTunes, Anchor FM and the other platforms and left a review for the Pollination Mamas podcast. This helps for the podcast to be seen more and to get the word out there of these topics that we're all discussing to a larger audience. I found podcasts so helpful to feel a bit more connected to ideas that I didn't realize were um, so common amongst us all so yeah also feel free to share with anyone out there that you feel may gain something from this i also have a sign up on my website pollinationmamas.com where i send out approximately a monthly mail out with latest podcasts sales on my small batch largely homegrown herbal products 
latest workshops and other thoughts and ideas that I might pop up on the blog occasionally. So thanks again for tuning in and hope to have you listening again soon.